Chapter 2 of Prejudices, First Series. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Prejudices, First Series by H. L. Mencken. The late Mr. Wells. The man as artist, I fear, is extinct not by some sudden and romantic catastrophe like his own Richard Remington, but after a process of gradual and obscure decay. In his day he was easily the most brilliant, if not always the most profound, of contemporary English novelists. There were in him all of the requisites for the business, and most of them very abundantly. He had a lively and charming imagination. He wrote with the utmost fluency and address. He had humor and eloquence. He had a sharp eye for the odd and intriguing in human character, and, most of all, he was full of feeling and could transmit it to the reader. That high day of his lasted, say, from 1908 to 1912. It began with Tono Bungay and ended amid the last scenes of marriage, as the well-made play of Scribe gave up the ghost in the last act of Adal's house. There, in marriage, were the first faint signs of something wrong. Invention succumbed to theories that somehow failed to hang together, and the story, after vast heavings, incontinently went to pieces. One had begun with an acute and highly diverting study of monogamy in modern London. One found oneself, toward the close, gaping over an unconvincing fable of marriage in the Stone Age. Coming directly after so vivid a personage as Remington, Dr. Richard Godwin Trafford simply refused to go down, and his Marjorie, following his example, stuck in the gullet of the imagination. One ceased to believe in them when they set out for Labrador, and after that it was impossible to revive interest in them. The more they were explained and vivisected and drenched with theories, the more unreal they became. Since then, the decline of Wells has been as steady as his rise was rapid. Call the roll of his books, and you will discern a progressive and unmistakable falling off. Into the passionate friends, there crept the first downright dullness. By this time, his readers had become familiar with his machinery and his materials, his elbowing suffragettes, his tea-swilling London uplifters, his smattering of quasi-science, his intellectualized adulteries, his Thackerayan asides, his textbook paragraphs, his journalistic raciness, and all these things had thus begun to lose the blush of their first charm. To help them out, he heaved in larger and larger doses of theory, often diverting enough and sometimes even persuasive, but in the long run a poor substitute for the proper ingredients of character, situation, and human passion. Next came the wife of Sir Isaac Harmon, an attempt to rewrite A Doll's House with a fourth act in terms of antebellum 1914. 
The result was 500-odd pages of bosh, a flabby and tedious piece of work. Wells, for the first time, in the role of unmistakable bore. And then, Bealby, with its Palais Royal jocosity, its running in and out of doors, its humor of physical collision, its reminiscences of A Trip to Chinatown and Peck's Bad Boy. And then Boone, a heavy-witted satire, often incomprehensible, always incommoded by its disguise as a novel. And then The Research Magnificent, a poor soup from the dry bones of Nietzsche. And then Mr. Britling sees it through. Here, for a happy moment, there seemed to be something better, almost, in fact, a recrudescence of the wells of 1910. But that seeming was only seeming. What confused the judgment was the enormous popular success of the book. Because it presented a fifth-rate Englishman in an heroic aspect, because it sentimentalized the whole reaction of the English proletariat to the war, it offered a subtle sort of flattery to other fifth-rate Englishmen and, per corollary, to Americans of corresponding degree, to wit, the second. Thus, it made a great pother, and was hymned as a masterpiece in such gazettes as the New York Times, as Blasco Ibanez's The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse was destined to be hymned three years later. But there was in the book in point of fact, a great hollowness. And that hollowness presently begat an implosion that disposed of the shell. I dare say many a novel reader returns now and then to Tonobonge and even to Anne Veronica. But surely only a reader with absolutely nothing else to read would return to Mr. Britling Sees It Through. There followed... What? The Soul of a Bishop. Perhaps the worst novel ever written by a serious novelist since novel writing began. And then, or perhaps a bit before, or simultaneously, an idiotic religious tract, a tract so utterly feeble and preposterous that even the Scotchman William Archer could not stomach it. And then, to make an end, came Joan and Peter, and the collapse of Wells was revealed at last in its true proportions. This Joan and Peter, I confess, lingers in my memory as unpleasantly as a summer cold, and so, in retrospect, I may perhaps exaggerate its intrinsic badness. I would not look into it again for gold and frankincense. I was at the job of reading it for days and days, endlessly daunted and halted by its laborious dullness, its flatulent fatuity, its almost fabulous inconsequentiality. It was, and is, nearly impossible to believe that the wells of Tono Bungay and the history of Mr. Polly wrote it, or that he was in the full possession of his faculties when he allowed it to be printed under his name. For in it, there is the fault that the Wells of those days, almost beyond any other fictioneer of the time, was incapable of. The fault of dismalness, 
of tediousness, the witless and contagious coma of the evangelist. Here, for nearly 600 pages of fine type, he rolls on in an intellectual cloud, boring one abominably with uninteresting people, pointless situations, revelations that reveal nothing, arguments that have no appositeness, expositions that expose naught save an insatiable and torturing garrulity. Where is the old fine address of the man? Where is his sharp eye for the salient and significant in character? Where is his instinct for form, his skill at putting a story together, his hand for making it unwind itself? These things are so far gone that it becomes hard to believe that they ever existed. There is not the slightest sign of them in Joan and Peter. The book is a botch from end to end, and in that botch there is not even the palliation of an arduous enterprise gallantly attempted. No inherent difficulty is visible. The story is anything but complex, and surely anything but subtle. Its badness lies wholly in the fact that the author made a mess of the writing, that his quondam cunning, once so exhilarating, was gone when he began it. Reviewing it at the time of its publication, I inclined momentarily to the notion that the war was to blame. No one could overestimate the cost of that struggle to the English, not only in men and money, but also, and more importantly, in the things of the spirit. It developed national traits that were greatly at odds with the old ideal of Anglo-Saxon character, an extravagant hysteria, a tendency to whimper under blows, political radicalism and credulity. It overthrew the old ruling caste of the land and gave over the control of things to upstarts from the lowest classes, shady Jews, snuffling Methodists, prehensile commercial gents, disgusting demagogues, all sorts of self-seeking adventurers. Worst of all, the strain seemed to work havoc with the customary dignity and reticence, and even with the plain common sense of many Englishmen on a higher level, and, in particular, many English writers. The astounding bawling of Kipling and the no less astounding bombast of G.K. Chesterton were anything but isolated. There were, in fact, scores of other eminent authors in the same state of eruption, and a study of the resultant literature of objurgation will make a fascinating job for some sweating privadozent of tomorrow, say, out of Gottingen or Jena. It occurred to me, as I say, that Wells might have become afflicted by this same demoralization, but reflection disposed of the notion. On the one hand, there was the plain fact that his actual writings on the war, while marked by the bitterness of the time, were anything but insane. And, on the other hand, there was the equally plain fact that his decay had been in progress a long while before the Germans made their fateful thrust at Liege. The precise thing that ailed him I found at last on page 272 of the American edition of his book. There it was, plainly described, albeit unwittingly, but if you will go back to the other novels since marriage, 
you will find traces of it in all of them, and even more vivid indications in the books of exposition and philosophizing that have accompanied them. What has slowly crippled him and perhaps disposed of him is his gradual acceptance of the theory, corrupting to the artist and scarcely less so to the man, that he is one of the great thinkers of his era, charged with a pregnant message to the younger generation, that his ideas, rammed into enough skulls, will save the empire, not only from the satanic Nietzscheism of the Hindenburgs and post-Hindenburgs, but also from all those inner weaknesses that taint and flabbergast its vitals, as the tapeworm with nineteen heads devoured a therapist of Macedon. In brief, he suffers from a messianic delusion, and once a man begins to suffer from a messianic delusion, his days as a serious artist are ended. He may yet serve the state with laudable devotion, he may yet enchant his millions, he may yet posture and gyrate before the world as a man of mark, but not in the character of artist, not as a creator of sound books, not in the separate place of one who observes the eternal tragedy of man with full sympathy and understanding, and yet with a touch of godlike remoteness, not as Homer saw it, smiting the while his blooming lyre. I point, as I say, to page 272 of Joan and Peter, whereon, imperfectly concealed by jocosity, you will find Wells's private view of Wells, a view at once too flattering and libelous. What it shows is the absorption of the artist in the tin-pot reformer and professional wise man. A descent, indeed. The man impinged upon us and made his first solid success, not as a merchant of banal pedagogics, not as a hawker of sociological liver pills, but as a master of brilliant and lifelike representation, an evoker of unaccustomed but nonetheless deep-seated emotions, a dramatist of fine imagination and highly resourceful execution. It was the stupendous drama and spectacle of modern life, and not its dubious and unintelligible lessons, that drew him from his test-tubes and guinea-pigs, and made an artist of him. And to the business of that artist, once he had served his apprenticeship, he brought a vision so keen, a point of view so fresh and sane, and a talent for exhibition so lively and original, that he straightway conquered all of us. Nothing could exceed the sheer radiance of Tono Bongay. It is a work that glows with reality. It projects a whole epoch with unforgettable effect. It is a moving picture, conceived and arranged, not by the usual ex-bartender or chorus man, but by an extremely civilized and sophisticated observer, alert to every detail of the surface, and yet acutely aware of the internal play of forces, the essential springs the larger, deeper lines of it. In brief, it is a work of art of the soundest merit, for it both represents accurately and interprets convincingly, and under everything is a current of feeling that coordinates and informs the whole. 
But in the success of the book, and of the two or three following it, there was a temptation, and in the temptation, a peril. The audience was there, high in expectation, eagerly demanding more. And in the ego of the man, a true proletarian, and hence born with morals, faiths, certainties, vasty, gaseous hopes, there was an urge. That urge, it seems to me, began to torture him when he set about the passionate friends. In the presence of it, he was dissuaded from the business of an artist, made discontented with the business of an artist. It was not enough to display the life of his time with accuracy and understanding. It was not even enough to criticize it with a penetrating humor and sagacity. From the depths of his being, like some foul miasma, there arose the old fatuous yearning to change it, to improve it, to set it right where it was wrong, to make it over according to some pattern superior to the one followed by the Lord God Jehovah. With this sinister impulse, as aberrant in an artist as a taste for legs in an archbishop, the instinct that had created Tono Bungay and the new Machiavelli gave battle, and for a while the issue was in doubt. But with marriage, its trend began to be apparent, and before long, the evangelist was triumphant, and his bray battered the ear. And in the end, there was a quite different Wells before us, and a Wells worth infinitely less than the one driven off. Today, one must put him where he has begun to put himself, not among the literary artists of English, but among the Brummagem prophets of England. His old rival was Arnold Bennett, his new rival is the Fabian Society, or maybe Lord Northcliffe, or the surviving Chesterton, or the later Hilaire Belloc. The prophesying business is like writing fugues. It is fatal to everyone save the man of absolute genius. The lesser fellow, and Wells, for all his cleverness, is surely one of the lesser fellows, is bound to come to grief at it. And... One of the first signs of his coming to grief is the drying up of his sense of humor. Compare the soul of a bishop or Joan and Peter to Anne Veronica or the history of Mr. Polly. One notices instantly the disappearance of the comic spirit, the old searching irony, in brief of the precise thing that keeps the breath of life in Arnold Bennett. It was in Boone, I believe, that this irony showed its last flare. There is a passage in that book which somehow lingers in the memory, a portrait of the United States as it arose in the mind of an Englishman reading the Nation of yesteryear, quote, a vain, garrulous, and prosperous female of uncertain age and still more uncertain temper with unfounded pretensions to intellectuality and an idea of refinement of the most negative description, the aunt errant of Christendom, end quote. A capital whimsy, but blooming almost alone. A sense of humor, had it been able to survive the theology, would certainly have saved us from Lady Sunderbund in The Soul of a Bishop, 
and from Lady Charlotte Sydenham in Joan and Peter. But it did not and could not survive. It always withers in the presence of the messianic delusion, like justice and the truth in front of patriotic passion. What takes its place is the oafish, witless buffoonishness of the Chautauquas and the floor of Congress, for example, the sort of thing that makes an intolerable bore of Bealby. Nor are Wells's ideas, as he has so laboriously expounded them, worth the sacrifice of his old lively charm. They are, in fact, second-hand, and he often muddles them in the telling. In First and Last Things, he preaches a flabby socialism, and then, toward the end, admits frankly that it doesn't work. In Boone, he erects a whole book upon an eighth-rate platitude, to wit, the platitude that English literature in these latter times is platitudinous, a three-cornered banality indeed, for his own argument is a case in point, and so helps to prove what was already obvious. In The Research Magnificent, he smooches an idea from Nietzsche, and then mauls it so badly that one begins to wonder whether he's in favor of it or against it. In The Undying Fire, he first states the obvious, and then flees from it in alarm. In his war books, he borrows right and left from Dr. Wilson, from the British socialists, from Romain Rolland, even from such profound thinkers as James M. Beck, Lloyd George, and the editor of the New York Tribune, and everything that he borrows is flat. In Joan and Peter, he first argues that England is going to pot because English education is too formal and archaic, and then that Germany is going to pot, because German education is too realistic and opportunist. He seems to respond to all the varying crazes and fallacies of the day. He swallows them without digesting them. He tries to substitute mere timeliness for reflection and feeling. And under all the rumble-bumble of bad ideas is the imbecile assumption of the Jitney Messiah at all times and everywhere that human beings may be made over by changing the rules under which they live, that progress is a matter of intent and foresight, that an act of Parliament can cure the blunders and check the practical joking of God. Such notions are surely no baggage for a serious novelist. A novelist, of course, must have a point of view, but it must be a point of view untroubled by the crazes of the moment, it must regard the internal workings and meanings of existence, and not merely its superficial appearances. A novelist must view life from some secure rock, drawing it into a definite perspective, interpreting it upon an ordered plan. Even if he hold, as Conrad does in Dreiser and Hardy and Anatole France, that it is essentially meaningless, he must at least display that meaninglessness with reasonable clarity and consistency. Wells shows no such solid and intelligible attitude. He is too facile, too enthusiastic, too eager to teach today what he learned yesterday. Van Wyck Brooks once tried to reduce the whole body of his doctrine to a succinct statement. 
The result was a little volume a great deal more plausible than any that Wells himself has ever written, but also one that probably surprised him now and then as he read it. In it, all his contradictions were reconciled, all his gaps bridged, all his shifts ameliorated. Brooks did for him, in brief, what William Bayard Hale did for Dr. Wilson in The New Freedom, and has lived to regret it, I dare say, or at all events, the vain labor of it in the same manner. What Remains of Wells There remains a little shelf of very excellent books, beginning with Tono Bungay and ending with Marriage. It is a shelf flanked on the one side by a long row of extravagant romances in the manner of Jules Verne, and on the other side by an even longer row of puerile tracts. But let us not underestimate it because it is in such uninviting company. There is on it some of the liveliest, most original, most amusing, and withal most respectable fiction that England has produced in our time. In that fiction, there is a sufficient memorial to a man who, between two debauches of claptrap, had his day as an artist. End of chapter 2 Recording by Linda Johnson